Welcome to Hubstaff's Agency Advantage Podcast, hosted by Andy Baldacci. Each week, Andy interviews a successful agency owner who shares their proven strategies to help you build and grow your agency. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Hubstaff's Agency Advantage Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Baldacci, and today for interview number 33, I'm talking with Dan Englander of SalesSchema.com. Dan was like a lot of us when he started out. He didn't really see himself as a salesperson. Regardless of those feelings, though, he quickly realized that he needed to change that if he wanted to succeed at his job as employee number two at a video production agency. By constantly learning, practicing, and adjusting, Dan was able to turn the agency around and grew it to $1.4 million in revenues in year two, and he never looked back. Today, he helps teach other consultants and agency owners how to grow their businesses by focusing on the most overlooked marketing asset an agency has their current clients. Dan does a great job in this interview of giving examples wherever he can, and honestly, this turned into one of the more actionable interviews on sales that I've had. So without further ado, here's Dan. Dan, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me on, Andy. Yeah, so you have some great experience that I know our listeners can learn a lot from, but for those who aren't familiar with you, can you share just a quick 60-second backstory? Who is Dan Englander? Yeah, so I uh, run Sales Schema, where I help business owners, salespeople, freelancers improve its sales. And my emphasis tends to be on account management, which you know can mean different things in different industries. But it's basically kind of a blend between client service and sales, and it entails lots of farming and customer retention and so on. So in that, I offer consulting and an online course, and I'm based uh, here in New York City. Um, but before that, you know, my first job was kind of as this agency grunt, um, churning out proposals that were often overlooked, you know, here in the New York advertising space. Um, obviously, that was a, kind of a great crash course, a lot of hard work, kind of an early career thing, and got out of that as quickly as I could. Um, I got lucky enough to kind of land this position as the first employee in an ad, in an animation studio. So we did sort of the archetypal tech startup explainer, but kind of giving it like a high quality broadcast animation approach. Do you have any kind of creative skills like that yourself? A little bit. So I was in college radio and I did like audio editing kind of off and on, but pretty much I was hired on to do sales and account management and biz dev and then a million other things and doing because there were just two of us, you know. Um, so that was that was amazing. And, you know, I struggled for a long time. I, I like most people that kind of end up in account management or in a creative space. They don't think of themselves as salespeople. Um, and I didn't take pride in that role. And it took some some training from you know, a really helpful consultant and mentor by, by the name of Mike Ganzel um, and, and just reading a lot and kind of figuring out, hey, I, I'm in sales. I need to figure out how to do this. Um, and I just got lots of perspectives. I networked with lots of people and then eventually kind of turned the business around. And, you know, our braggadocio, we eventually got to with, with me at the helm doing sales was, you know, we got to like 1.4 million in year two and eventually wow. Fortune 500 clients and, and so on. So and then moving from, you know, a little tiny glass cubicle to a big studio space in Midtown <laughs> and all sorts of fun. So it was it was it's been a great journey with them. Um, yeah, and I, and I left in like 2014, traveled Asia for a while lived on parents' couches for a few months and then kind of <laughs> built the business I, I have now. Yeah. So what do you think made you so successful? Like, what do you think went from kind of spinning your wheels a little bit to growing to over a million dollar agency than to landing those big Fortune 500s? Um, I, think, I think it was realizing that, that I was in sales and then really doubling down on that um, and not being afraid to get 
tough criticism a lot of the time. And also, you know, I was just fortunate enough to get a lot of practice. We, it's, it's, these things don't exist in a vacuum. And I think I was lucky enough to kind of have a good enough product, have our marketing channels in place enough to practice so much. Mm -hmm. I got on probably thousands of calls and that's not even exaggerating. You know, there were just all these calls every single day, every morning I would just start chugging through them. Um, and I wasn't, I think, I think a lot of the times like you have to start qualifying people and being careful about who you talk to so that you don't waste all your time and so on. But when you're early, when you're just getting into it, you want to just talk to as many people as possible. And I wasn't discriminate. Um, so that was one thing. And then just kind of building a very tight defined process and getting sales to kind of do a point where it's almost boring, which sounds a little bit counterintuitive, but I think when it's done right, it's this process that's just kind of well-defined and, and just keeps churning over and over again, as opposed to something where you're, you know, reinventing the wheel in each and every occasion. That's a really good way of putting it because I know a lot of people, especially creatives who don't see themselves as salespeople, they resist it so much that they basically are reinventing every time because they don't have a process. So they're just kind of picking up the phone, talking to the client. And it's like, ah, we'll see what happens and doing their best. But that almost makes it, well, it does make it 10 times harder. Exactly. Exactly. Because you don't, you don't know what you're doing at each and every stage and everything is a new problem. Um, and you know, it's the curveballs that kind of define the process. Like, of course, every situation is going to be different. And I, I, I'm a big believer in a sales script, but I, I, I have a lot of caveats with it where when you say sales script, people turn and run and they think you're going to be like a telemarketer and like mm-hmm. this robot, but it's really just a way for you to phrase things that you know, you need to get across. And it's kind of more like you can pick a different tool for a different situation and just kind of have this in front of you. And if things go a different way, that's fine. But at least you have um, something to draw from. No, that's that's another great point because you're right. Is that the procedures, one of the guests I had on the show, Carl Sakis, he's works with digital agencies to kind of help them avoid a lot of the growing pains that come from scaling an agency. And a lot of the procedures that so many agency owners resist, they don't need to be rigidly followed, but they're there when things to kind of prevent things from going off the tracks a bit. Exactly. You said you, you were working on creating a, more of a sales process to make the process a bit boring. Can you talk about what that process is that you kind of came up with and developed? Yeah. I mean, it's basically a, a set of stages that happens before, during, and after every engagement. So my emphasis is, is on account managers and business owners and salespeople that are often utility players and not always. I think these skills apply uh, regardless. But it's the sort of situation where you're, you know, you're winning the business, whether or not you're the one prospecting or you have an inbound lead or so on. You're the one winning it. Um, you're involved in either transitioning or managing the project. And then you're involved in the farming and getting follow-up business. So I, I think that a lot of the times companies kind of tend to silo client service and sales when really they're, they're inextricably linked. Obviously, if you're a solopreneur or a freelancer, you know that already. Um, but even if you're not, you're, you're in sales. So I, to answer your question in terms of, of developing that process, I think it's, it's kind of having the script, something you can draw from, and then having a specific set of steps at the beginning. Um, that could be the sort of classic process where it's a qualification call onto a proposal that you present in real time and then getting a yes or no on that. If you have a much more complex or, or expensive product, there might be many more stages. There might be a demo if it's a digital product, but kind of having that process in mind. And then there's there's sort of X factors that you can add in. Um, one, just to throw out an example off the cuff, is 
I like to do something called like connecting the comrades. So it's, it's, if let's say you're talking to, uh, you're an underling and you're talking to a business owner and you qualify them and they're a good prospect, that might be a good occasion to justify bringing your owner into the mix because business owners like talking to other business owners. Um, and I think a lot of the times when they kind of take the sales red pill, people take that, that red pill, so to speak, they're like, Oh no, everyone's trying to steal my time away. And that's true. You have to, you do have to be protective. But there's there's things that you can do to kind of up the ante and uh, make these these make the commitment bigger until closing becomes the last logical step instead of the, some sort of like you know magical set of words you say to make people suddenly become convinced. It's not super complex, especially at the at the root. It's setting up the steps, kind of from going from stage to stage. And like you said, depending on the complexity of what you're selling, if you're selling custom WordPress sites or if you're selling custom enterprise applications like you're going to have a different sales cycle for each of those but it's kind of from the outset laying out what those steps are yeah yeah exactly and then if you want to start throwing in the kind of those x factors or start one making more tweaks to adapt to the situation then you're able to do that but the first is kind of getting the basics in place yeah yeah you basically have a set of of tools or set of arrows in your quiver that you can pull out for different situations um and you know, just because you, you're selective about what you use, you know, each tool for doesn't mean you can't have different things to choose from. doesn't mean you can't have a, a, have a defined process. What was this process like? Cause you said you were getting just thousands of calls, basically a lot of inbound leads at that right. agency. Yeah. And outbound. And then when we kind of had slow months, I would, I would fill the gaps by making cold calls and yeah. And uh, going to networking meetings and so on. And but yes, um, it, it sort of varied, but largely inbound, and then that would kind of tail off and so on. Yeah. What I really want to talk about today is is how you handle the clients you already have and, and kind of farming them for more work. Can you talk to that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, farming is so important because it's obviously many times easier to win business with, with a previous client than with new prospects. There's all sorts of data on this and from different places. And I think people kind of know that. Um, but the problem is pe- people have a lot of head trash about, about farming. I, I certainly did. I, I found, I always found it way more awkward and uncomfortable approaching somebody that I had sort of like this close collegial bond with from working with and then trying to get them to give me more money for something else. And just uh, so, to, to yeah. stop you quickly, just sure. so for listeners who might not be familiar with the term farming basically means what you just said is, yeah. is looking at your current accounts, your active clients or even past clients in basically trying to get more business from them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, I, like many people I deal with every day, if not most, their farming process consists of calling up a client, being like, hey, how's it going? You know, how's the weather over there? (laughs) Uh, Are you ready to buy again yet? Right. You want to buy? Do you have any websites you need developed? Right, exactly. And, you know, a lot of the times they'll kind of appease you because, you you know, you guys have this bond and they'll, they'll, they'll give you what you're going for and then it just won't go anywhere and it'll just kind of be this awkward waste of time. Um, so you, you, obviously, you obviously can't do that. Um, it doesn't work that well. So, so what do you do? Like what do you do in place of that? And the answer is you have to be solving some other pain that they have. Um, and to do that, you have to first kind of find out about that pain and find out what you're actually in a position to solve. To do that and to learn about those things, what I really like to do is a debrief call. And basically, you can define this debrief call as part of your process as sort of cemented in the same way that invoicing is or that any other part of your process is. So when you land a new client, 
Um, and I'm sure most of your clients are savvy enough to kind of define uh, what's going to happen next and to set expectations and say, first, we're going to have a discovery call, then you're going to expect this asset and so on. The debrief call should be just as much part of that as everything else. Um, so I think that's that's really important. What uh, happens in the debrief call? Good question. So first, you have to kind of set it up right um, after you've defined it as part of the normal process. And the reason for the debrief call is to give them additional value, to you know, give them specific advice on how to get the best results from the engagement or from the product you've created for them, be that a website or a marketing campaign or whatever. So, and you're not going to bait and switch. You know, you're not going to say you're going to give them that and suddenly throw them into this pitch where you're like, wait, there's more or something. Um, so, so you set it up like that, you know, you set a time to talk. And the first thing I like to do is, is basically figure out where you stand, right? Cause a lot of the times when I've dealt with the vendors, they'll call me up then maybe they'll they, they will do something like a debrief call. But usually it's like I said before, they'll still come out call and say, Hey, how's it going? And then they'll start pitching me on some upsell or whatever. Um, and then so much of the time, you know, the experience was kind of mediocre, if not terrible with whatever vendor we were working with. And it was much easier to just kind of inter- humor them than it was to give them the hard truth. Um, and then, you know, I'm not saying that we were perfect either. Like on the other side, I'm sure that there were times when we did great. There were other times when we did okay. And then other times where I know we didn't do well. Um, but regardless, you, you have to kind of figure out where you stand. So, you know, you can just ask questions like, how did we do? What, what can we improve on? What were you skeptical about at the outset of the project? What do you feel better about? What do you, how do you feel now? Um, and just get can- candid answers and helpful feedback because they're, how they feel about you isn't going to change from you having that information and them saying, saying it to you. So I, I think that helps a lot so you know where to invest your energy, what you actually can go for in terms of an opportunity and what, what you can. So once you kind of know where you stand, then you're, you're back to basically, you know, requalifying them um, and finding new pain, finding new needs that they have, you know, keep kind of an, an ear out for signs of overwhelm and fear or, or just pet goals that they're passionate about. Um, so some questions like that to get specific are, you know, what are, what are your imminent plans for the website? Uh, how are you going to be driving traffic to it? What is your, what is your overall marketing plan this quarter? Um, and what's, what would constitute a success? And these are kind of big questions, and they, what I've found is that they often lead to lots of speculation, and you don't get really specific answers from people because they just get overwhelmed by the question itself. So sometimes if you kind of can paint numbers on that blank slate, it'll help them jog ideas. Like, you know, sometimes I'll say, you know, if our videos brought in 10 more leads a month for you, would that be a success? And then they'll say, no, no, we need to bring like 100 right. leads. So push so, back so- and try to get them to kind of dial in a bit. Exactly. Yeah. So it's it's basically it's not it's not a world away from your original sales process where you kind of figured out if people have enough pain to justify what you do to begin with, but you're just kind of digging deeper and then learning about it in the context of this new uh, amazing thing they have that you created for them. So you know basically what comes next. And how um, much of it is sort of asking them or hoping that they tell you what they need, like hoping that they say. Well, we actually have this new marketing issue that we're starting next quarter that you could really help on. Or how much of it is you saying, well, if these are your goals for the next quarter, I really think this could help you get there. Like how much is you kind of diagnosing it or how much is them suggesting? Good question. Um, obviously, them suggesting things is, is amazing. That's a win. If they suggest something proactively that you can help with, then by all means, go for it. 
Um, but what happens a lot of the time is is that the, they don't really know what, what they need. They know that they're stressed. They know that they're busy. They, they know they're juggling a million things, but they don't know specifically what you, what you can help with. And even if they if they have a feeling about it, you know, they might be worried that you're that you're going to sell them too hard, or that you're not going to be the perfect fit. So they don't want to show you their cards immediately. And I know you're a poker player, so <laughs> you kind of appreciate that. Yeah, I get analogies. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I, I think you have to kind of treat it almost like a new sales situation, but it's one where you've already built all the trust, where they already know you, you already know them. So it's just a, it's it's you're already miles ahead. And and to answer your question, I, I think once you know that then that's when you suggest, you know, new opportunities to work together. But instead of, of sort of being forceful about it and acting like you know everything and saying, I think you should do this, you can pose it as a question. You know, you can say, um, have you considered building a set of new landing pages for dentists in Chicago as opposed to doing what you're doing now? Or have you considered this? Uh, and then just wait until something kind of starts to gel. Okay, so it's basically asking enough questions and then kind of, Respond not with rhetorical ones, but just seeing, trying to gauge where they're at and like if something kind of strikes a chord with them. Exactly, exactly. And I think the, the biggest part of that is, is the, the, it's often neglected by um, people who are doing farming is that it becomes kind of this zero sum thing where people go for just getting people to repurchase from them again for their most expensive flagship product. You know, maybe that's like a whole new website built or it's a whole new campaign or whatever it is. Instead, there's other ways to get opportunities from from your customers and to kind of stay involved even until they are ready to purchase your flagship thing again. Um, so instead of just saying, "Hey, do you want to buy a whole new site or something?" you can you can go for referrals. That's a great thing to do. Um, you know, referrals are much more likely to close than than almost any other lead. Um, you can give referrals. So if there's something they need that you don't provide, but you have kind of a strategic partner or just somebody in your network, you can get, get them over to them. And that will kind of bring them into your network so that now when they get a good experience from your friend, your friend says, you know, you should contact Andy again um, and so on. And then and, and so basically and also like as a last resort, if none of those things are a fit, case studies, testimonials, those just kind of marketing collateral, you can go for that. And, it, and the sort of um, ancillary benefit to that is it, it, is it keeps you in the picture, it keeps you involved because you have to learn from them. You have to get the results from the website or the campaign in order to create the case study. So it kind of keeps you in the picture. Right. And it seems like to me the, the debrief call, the perfect outcome is for them to kind of go after your flagship product, whatever, or service, whatever that may be. But there are a lot of other outcomes that benefit you, and there are also a lot that benefit them. Like, it's sort of finding ways that you can provide them with more value. Exactly. But in the case where, say, they're not that interested in something, they're just so busy focused about getting this one project done, that's it. Maybe you can get a testimonial. But what, what happens after that? Do you just kind of let them go on their way, or is there a regular process you follow to check back in? Well, I think a, a lot of the process that people use to check back in are, 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 are things that can be best handled by robots. <laughs> um, so it, it's basically following up and, and providing helpful articles, providing um, tools for them to use. And a lot of the times, business owners and salespeople will try to do that themselves. But it's usually kind of a rote email. 
And I think that it can be handled by an autoresponder or just by marketing as opposed to sales because I think it's very resource intensive for salespeople to be dealing with that. So that, but that's that's the sort of you know those are the lower rung of of the customers that you're you're going after. You know, usually there's going to be some immediate imminent thing that they're dealing with that justifies proactively following up. So if they say you know we're really busy right now, um, maybe next quarter. Then your question becomes, you know, what's going to be different then if you don't mind me asking? Should it, would it be helpful to talk then? And, you know, they're basically back. You're, they're giving you answers that are, that are going to justify what you're going to do next. The people who aren't looking for more work, you're saying just kind of put them on a nurturing campaign. If they raise their hand and say, hey, I could use some help, then you come in and go for a higher touch approach. But you want to obviously put most of the focus on the people who have expressed some additional need. Exactly. But a lot of the times you can be the one to kind of influence that, that need. Um, and you can, you can stay involved and get some sort of benefit out of it as opposed for, as opposed to just waiting for them to raise their hand again. Um, and like I said, I think case creating case studies is a great, great way to do that. I think talking about, um, compelling work, you know, with their competitors or with relevant people in their industry is a great way to do that. So there's all sorts of ways to stay involved as long as you have something com- compelling to talk to them about. You, you can't just hit them up and say what's new. So they know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> right. If you do get that case study, if someone does say, Hey, let, let's circle back next quarter. I have this project about X, like you're following up with them on resources that are related to what they're working on or what kind of things are you using to stay in touch in those cases where there is another project potentially, but it's down the road. Right. Well, I think the most imminent thing is creating some sort of resource that helps them get the best results from your product. So I often call this a, um, a take home guide, you know, or something to that effect. So I think that can be the, the very first thing. And, you know, as with any content creation, just you can create it and repurpose it in a million different ways. So that's it can, can kind of become more than the sum of its parts. You can use it as a marketing tool as well. But I think providing that and following up on it and making sure that they're getting the results that you promise um, is a great way to do that. Yeah, the a first step of just making sure that that original project actually achieved what they hoped it did. Exactly. And that's really um, half the battle, I'd say, if not more. It's just making sure that they're getting getting the results that you promised. And then um, from there, you know, after you've had this debrief call, it's going it's to inform a lot more about their situation and sort of what else they're up against. So, you know, that could be, like I said, case studies. It could be referring them to other people that can help them. And you know, even if you aren't a generalist, even if you've kind of niched down to a very specific thing, it doesn't mean you can't be a generalist in terms of helping people in terms of giving them what they want. And that's just going to put you so much further ahead. Right. It's just, it's finding ways to stand out. It's finding ways to kind of show that you're a professional, that it's a partnership that even if you can't help them with your own services, that you can provide them with value in the case of referrals, in the case of more uh, kind of knowledge, more content, whatever it might be. Right. Exactly. This, it seems to me like the biggest thing with, with farming is one taking the step to, well, I guess all of it, it comes down to building it in so that it's part of your standard process. So that is something that you don't only turn to when you're, when work is low. It's something that you're doing consistently kind of with every project week in, week out. Exactly. Yeah. Because it's, you've already done the hard work. You've already done the hard work through marketing, whether it be inbound or outbound. You've done the hard work of winning the business. You've done the hard work of, of doing well by your client. So it just doesn't make any sense just to kind of let them you know, go on their merry way after that. 
Right. And most of the times the first project you get with a client isn't going to be the biggest. Right. Exactly. One of my friends, Matt Inglot, he has a podcast, Freelance Transformation. One of his big things is that it's the same idea of farming. And he said that a lot of clients, he would get some of his best clients from Craigslist, and which most people will turn their nose up at. But he would get them in a B for a project that would be a few thousand dollars. But he would keep working with them, keep providing them value, build that relationship with them. And then over time, those would turn into six-figure relationships. I and, love that. I love that. And that's the thing is that if if you truly treat it as a partnership and it's something where you're, they're not just coming to you for the help for one thing, they, they're going to have ongoing needs. And, yeah. Yeah. And that's been my experience too is that you know we would create these animated explainer videos that would have to kind of sum up an entire – business proposition into 90 seconds or so. So it ended up kind of becoming way bigger than the sum of its parts as an exercise. So, you know, while we, we didn't want to do more than just video, they would come back to us for other, other design stuff. And we'd send them to one partner. They come back to us for website development and we send them to some, to someone else. Cause they just kind of knew that in the process of discovery and developing this video, we knew so much about their needs. So you can kind of, treat your product like it's way bigger than the sum of its parts in terms of your understanding. Right. And then as that relationship deepens, like you just said, you know so much about their needs, about them, about their goals and everything that working with someone else would be such a pain because just to get to that point with another agency, with another freelancer, with another whoever, that's going to take, it took you years. So like they're not going to be in any rush to leave. So keep doing them right and keep building that relationship. And the, the scary thing is, is that I, I've gotten clients before um, that had left other agencies that had done bad by them for so long until it, they finally left. The bar is already is often low anyway, unfortunately, um, that if you actually do well and, and you're proactive, you know, you're just in, in such an advantageous position. Building long-lasting and profitable relationships with clients is crucial to growing a successful agency, but you still need to make sure you have new clients coming in. So after this quick word from our sponsor, Dan's going to talk about the process he follows to do just that. So hang tight. We'll be right back. The Agency Advantage podcast is brought to you by Hubstaff. Now, Hubstaff makes time tracking software for remote teams so that you can stop tracking time with spreadsheets or on the back of napkins or whatever else you're using and start getting the insights into how your team is actually spending their time that only screenshots and in-depth reports can give you. Our best clients are agency owners. And while they love the accountability that comes with it, it's sort of like Upwork, but without all the crazy fees. Where they really find the true value is by being able to connect Hubstaff with a project management tool to see what tasks are taking up their team's time. Think of it as Google Analytics for your team. I do want to warn you, though, there's a good chance once you see this data, you're going to be sick when you realize how little time is spent actually delivering the project itself. But you can't set up the procedures to make your agency more efficient if you're just guessing where time is being spent. So give Hubstaff a try so you can stop guessing and start streamlining your agency. Head over to hubstaff.com today and sign up for a free, no credit card required, 14-day trial and get your agency back on track. All right, let's get back to Dan. But so to grow, you still are going to need to have these new prospects, these new relationships coming in. So what do you, because I know you do talk a lot and you have done a lot with prospecting. Do you want to touch on that now? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in in my experience at, at the animation studio, um, we, we didn't make the mistake of doing what many freelancers and small companies do, which is kind of giving shiny object syndrome and trying to do everything under the sun. 
Um, I don't think it was because we were that much smarter. I think it was just because we didn't get exposed to too many strategies too fast. And we just kind of took it slow almost by happenstance. So our, you know, our bread and butter for a while was PPC. Um, and then PBC got really expensive because all sorts of other, you know, the explainer video boom happened. Everybody wanted a video and all sorts of competitors from all over the world started flooding in. And then it, it kind of, it kind of crested where I think a lot of the studios realized, Hey, this is really crowded. And I think I'm going to try a new business and they left. And then, they, and then all of a sudden it got affordable again. So throughout that time, you know, it was very volatile, very pricey. I, I experimented with other strategies as well. Um, I, we did a lot of outbound email campaigns, um, and I did a lot of networking and we kind of coupled that with, with content development. Um, but I think, I think that's the, the important thing is, and this is, this is not, these aren't my original ideas. I think Gabriel Weinberg's traction is a great book. Have you read mm-hmm. that one? Yeah. Yeah. It's great. So I, I think that's a good place to start and just kind of realizing it's good to start with the things that don't scale very well. Um, so, you know, maybe kind of the hustling. Exactly. The hustling, the networking, just kind of landing your, your initial roster of clients. Um, and then going on to things like some sort of paid traffic channels grade or, or something that's inbound that drives inbound like content is sort of the next step from there. And what yeah. were your experiences like with, to go back a little bit, with doing the cold email? Was that, did that ever become a big kind of source of referrals for you or do you try and it didn't work? What, what was that like? It did. You know, and it's, it's, it's a great way to learn a lot because you can get data very fast. So outbound has been a performer for us. It hasn't been as great of a performer as inbound. And this is my, my previous life, not my current says. Um, but I, I, I think that. It's still amazing to me how many companies don't do outbound correctly and they still send out like basically something that reads like a resume. <laughs> you know, and I think everybody can sympathize. Like I still get dozens of these emails every day. Right. The sort of like bullet point of like, we've done this, we've done this, we can do this. And it's like, man, like you don't even know what I do. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and you know, when you do these mass campaigns, like there are going to be mismatches, like you're going to hit people that, that are quite the right fit. So I get it when I get somebody's not the right fit, but what I don't get is the structure of the email, <laughs> you know? Um, and I, I think I, I kind of understand why there's that disconnect. And my, my friend, Nate Smith, he runs, um, 80, 20 marketing guys. So he specializes in funnels. And I wish that I said this before he did, cause it's just, it's brilliant. But it's basically, you know, marketing is is picking the battles you want to fight, and sales is actually fighting them. Um, so I think that I'll, I'll credit that to him. Yeah, that is good. Yeah, yeah. So I think when you're writing these emails, you kind of have to keep that in mind. Um, and you know, this this isn't groundbreaking advice. You hear it a lot, but just super short, like three sentences, even, um, and very conversational. Um, and another thing is like not you don't have to go for the call to action for a meeting on the very first email. I think that a lot of senders think that that's a small commitment, but then anybody who gets those emails and I'm sure everyone can sympathize knows that that's not a small commitment that any call is going to be at least 15 minutes, probably longer. You're going to get sold something. Um, it's not, it's not a small deal. So I think kind of like ramping it up and getting people to take micro commitments before asking for that tends to perform better. And a lot of the times what we'll do is just say, you know, Hey, or we did in, in, in my, my previous role was we'd say, hey, we're, we're an animation studio. We're based in New York. Um, you can check out our work here. We've worked with some of your competitors like so-and-so. Um, just wondering, have you considered uh, creating a video to explain you know, what you guys do? And we would get great responses. And a lot of the times from there, people would proactively suggest a call or we would get it on the second email. So the goal... A micro commitment is basically a small thing like getting them to just respond and, and kind of answer a quick question. 
Exactly, yeah. Do you have any examples like other ways you could use that or is that typically your go-to was just asking them like if they had thought about using a similar service? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think there's a, there's a lot of different ways you can do that. And this, is, this isn't quite answering your question because um, I want to give it a little more thought. But I think back to the debrief call, for example, when you do find these needs and you do suggest them, instead of, of um, making an ask right away and asking them to, to invest with you, setting up an entirely new call to focus on that. Because getting them, getting them to take that step means that they're actually serious, interested in it. They're not just appeasing you. Um, and also just kind of let you, you know, do what you promise, give them value on the previous call and not pitch them. And you get an entirely blank slate to focus on this thing as opposed to it being juggled with all sorts of other data. Right. And it also does show the client as well in that case that you're not just absolutely trying to rush the next sale and always only concerned about that. Exactly. Yeah. And in terms of cold emails, you know, other questions you might ask just might be, you know, what have you done in the past when it comes to uh, PPC or when it comes to web design? You know, what, just just curious, have you, have you invested in this before? Um, so kind of focusing on the past is good, too, because in the future, people will speculate about it. But the past is, is very tucked away, you know, so you can definitely get information back. So instead of like, what do you plan on doing? It's yeah. like, what have you already done? Right, exactly. Because it's sort of like, what do you plan on doing? It's sort of like, A, I don't know. B, it's none of your effing business sort of thing. Yeah. With the cold email campaigns, like how, what are the responses like? Like, is it not even just the response rates, but like, are you going to, with any campaign, get some people who are just like, man, it's none of your business? Um, I've no, I mean, I've rarely gotten responses like that. I think, if, you know, you'll, you'll obviously get, get off the mark sometimes and people will ask you to politely not contact them again. Um, but mostly it's, it's either no response that or it's positive. Um, I, I haven't, I, I kind of use that facetiously. I haven't gotten too many responses that are, that are negative in that way specifically. Um, most people are, are just happy that you're interested and that you're not asking very much of them yet. Okay. Yeah. So a lot of that is just by design in, in that original email. Like it's not set up like kind of all the other annoying sales emails. Right. It's sort of like you want to maintain the same um, approach as if you met somebody like an acquaintance at a conference and you've had you've shared a drink with them or something or a friend of a friend. It's really that tone as opposed to marketing. When you're doing this, were you sending follow-ups or was it just kind of a one and done approach or what, what was your thought on that? Good question. Um, I'm a fan of one single follow-up because what the, and, and often I, I've, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I know that that's drastically outperformed the initial email because you know, what it's doing is it's showing people, Hey, I'm a person, I'm not a robot. There's, uh, there's actually something, somebody on the other side of this. Um, and I think it's important enough for, for me to send it again. So that's one, one side of it. The other side is the follow-up will say something like, Hey, this is the last time I'm going to check back. If it's not, if, um, if there's no interest, no worries. And there, there's people just have loss aversion, you know, it's just sort of a natural, um, it's a mental trigger. So that tends to be pretty compelling and I, we've definitely done well on those. Yeah. One, one thing I've, I will usually do is on the follow-up, I was like, hey, just trying one last time before throwing in the towel and then give thing. And so I think one, you're right, it's about the, the loss aversion. But I think the other thing is that they're like, oh, okay, this guy's not going to keep bugging me. I'll just give him a few seconds and just shoot off a reply. Yeah, exactly. But I know one thing you're big on is offering value kind of, of early on. When you ask these questions, when you just get the simple response, like if you say, have you considered using uh, explainer videos or have you ever used one in the past? 
they respond. How are you trying to give them value early on, like at a response level like that? Right. I, I think that a lot of the times people overthink how to offer value. Um, and they think about it a little, it's, it's not wrong and there's definitely value you can and should offer early on, but I think it's a, it's the wrong emphasis when it comes to that initial contact. What I like to think of it as is more intrigue, you know, like what's going to intrigue them enough to have a conversation with me. Cause that's all you're really going for. Like you don't even know if they're the right fit. There's all sorts of questions you haven't answered yet about them actually hiring you. Um, so that's, that's the question I ask myself is not like, how do I offer them value, but how do I intrigue them enough to get them to talk to me? And obviously like, you know, there's, you're not, you, you have to be on the level enough. You can't hold back, you know, too much from them, but that's, that's the sort of idea that I'm going for. So to get specific, um, I think there's nothing groundbreaking here that I'm going to say, but I think it's, um, off talking about your experience with competitors and this is this is also a little controversial because I know it's like when to talk about price is probably one of the most controversial things in sales. But if you sell a sort of well-defined product that you're going to need to get to price to qualify people within the first conversation anyway, I think using that as a carrot to get the conversation can be really effective by just saying, hey, if you have a few minutes for me to learn a little bit more about your needs so that I can get you some pricing information and other details, you know, let me know if you're free to talk or obviously phrase much more eloquently than that but i like how you phrase it as as generating intrigue as opposed to necessarily like providing value like you're not necessarily giving them like some 10-page customer report every time like that would obviously be valuable but you don't need to go to that extent it can be as simple as well we've been trying x with in this industry we've seen some really good results if you want to talk about more how we could do that for you we'd love to jump on a call something like that yeah, exactly. Except, uh, you know, not to pull, not to nitpick uh, your phrasing, but I th- I think even more casually than that, like uh, saying it, like, hey, you know, if you, we we've worked with X Y Z, would would you like to hear what we've done for them, or uh, or something like that? And that's not even that great either. But you know, just just the idea is just to go as sort of casual as possible. Um, and the other thing is is I think a lot of the times people uh, when they talk about value associated with information and. The problem isn't um, that there's not enough information. If anything, people are, are kind of overwhelmed by that. So I think that's kind of more on the marketing side is kind of intriguing, getting people in through the information. But then, you know, once you're kind of getting into people's inboxes in the middle of the day and interrupting them, it's it's not as much about getting them to read an article or something like that. It's about giving them something that's like that's really going to interest them and, and, and intrigue them. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it like that because you're right in that if – Giving them more content, giving them something like that, that's creating more work for them. Even if there's a payoff, I'm sure like people don't right now have a shortage of articles to read. And so if you can kind of condense that down and make it quick and make it so they're not, they don't have to do more work. They can jump on a call or they can do whatever and get this interesting little factoid or whatever it might be. That does seem like cognitively a lot less of a kind of stress than be like, Oh, let me just bombard you with another article that you probably won't read. Right. Exactly. But so let's, let's transition a bit. I want to hear more about kind of what you're doing today, like how you're, who you're working with, what you're actually doing for them and how you're kind of teaching this to other people. Right. So, you know, right now I'm working with a variety of businesses um, and I, I'm focusing on the account management angle more and, and basically farming, getting more business from existing customers. Um, now, that said, just because we're focusing on existing customers, you still have to 
develop the right relationship from the outset in order to encourage future business. So there's definitely a huge sales element to that. Um, and you know, that, that tends to filter into all sorts of different things all the way down to email campaigns, um, developing preferred customer systems. I'm working with, with a shipper or shipping company right now, a B2B shipping company to do that and to kind of figure out the best way to stay involved with his existing accounts. Um, and you know, and basically just offer additional value and be on their radar as opposed to just having these sort of one-off hookups that, that evaporate. So that's that's kind of what I'm working on now, and I'm taking on. I'm being selective about the the clients I take on because I want to make sure that that I can help them and that they have sort of enough of a roster for me to work with. But that's generally what I'm working on. And in addition, I, I have uh, an online course on account management called, you know, very originally uh, the Million Dollar Account Manager. <laughs> <laughs> nice uh, Alan Weiss style. I've never heard of him. Yeah, who's that guy? <laughs> but no, so how did you get those original clients when you did decide to kind of go and do out, do this out on your own? You know, um, it's, it's been a mix and I'm, I'm, to be honest, the consulting practice is new. I have just a, a small roster. So it's been, you know, like I said, it's been, um, non scalable methods. So it's been through networking and, and referrals from other people I know. Um, but just now, you know, within, within the last week, I'm starting to get, um, calls and, and, a new client or two from my existing list. So moving on to, to my, my current business, you know, I basically left the reservation, went to Asia, wrote this book and that book was kind of the start of, of my journey. And then I kind of got distracted by all sorts of other things like my niche that I focused on. I wrote books on explainer videos. And I did all these other things and B2B sales generally. Um, and then I realized that in, in sort of trying to find my, my, my area to focus on, um, I, I saw that my book had just been selling well and doing well on Amazon. And there just seemed to be this real need for how do I become a better account manager? How do I serve clients and stick around? So that's the problem that I'm, I'm trying to solve now. Cause I just think it's completely underserved. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so to answer your question, you know, I, I've, I've done sort of a launch this week really recently for my consulting offering, um, to my list. And that list has come from people that have opted in for my books mainly. Okay. And one question I, ha- I have that I'm guessing a lot of the listeners have too, is that everything you've talked about has made great sense. Like I understand the clear value of this. It's so hard to get new clients on board that it's a waste of time, money and energy to just forget about them after the first project like that. That's all everyone's in agreement with that. I, I hope, but where I think there might be some, not even reservations, but, but just, some roadblocks is that how do you actually balance all this? How do you find the time to kind of follow up with people to do all this when you're still actually delivering new projects and doing all the other work associated with it? Yeah, that's a very good question. And that's, that's a huge thing that I focus on in my books and and everything I do is is sort of balancing your, your time and your energy and just your, your peace of mind between those two things. Because, you know, to be honest, like client service and sales could are both full-time jobs. Like they could, they easily, they are, you know, in most industries. So if you're a business owner or you're at a startup and you're kind of this utility player, you have to just be very disciplined about handling each side of that, of that coin. Um, so, you know, what that means specifically and what, what I did when I finally learned how to do this, it completely transformed my, my productivity and my effectiveness was, 
keeping a very strict barrier between client service and sales. So I, me personally, and it might be different for other people's schedules, but I like to do sales early in the morning or, you know, right at the beginning of the workday, um, and do it every single day as this sort of continuing undertaking, because if you let it drop off, you won't feel the pain, but then by the time you feel it, it'll be too late to do anything about it. <laughs> right. And in client service, it's obviously super important too, but you can usually scramble. You can usually delegate and, and do and get things done for people. Sales, a little harder to make it happen overnight. And so when you say build up a barrier, you mean kind of instead of, you mean don't jump back and forth between the two tasks, kind of batch them at a single time there. I'm only going to work on prospecting or I'm only going to work on kind of uh, relationship building on, on farming. Exactly, exactly. And, um, and also just not letting clients overwhelm you and take you off of things that are equally, if not more important, which I think is a really tempting trap to fall into um, because everything starts to feel urgent. And then when you set the expectation that you're going to get somebody something right away, then that's just what they come to expect. But if you, if you, being responsive to your clients doesn't mean that you're constantly reachable. You know, if you get back to somebody the next day or within 24 hours or within a few hours, even if you're on in a sort of, you know, um, higher demand situation, that's, that's fine. It's only when you set the expectation that you're going to do everything ASAP whenever they want it that they come to expect that. And I think what a lot of this kind of comes back to is having – First, having, like you talked about before, is having the framework in place, is having the things that kind of keep you from going off the rails. But the other part is also just having the discipline to actually follow that. Yeah, that's a huge part of it. And like anything else, um, it, it comes from it comes from practice. It also comes from, and this is, you know, straight up kind of Tim Ferriss stuff, but, you know, limiting the inputs, limiting the sort of information that you're exposed to. Um, if there's a client email that could be dealt with in 24 hours, but you know about it now, you're going to deal with it now because it's just going to be bothering you. Um, so I think, you know, setting clear expectations from the outset and then physically limiting the information that's coming to you is a great way to kind of develop that, that strength and that practice. To be so by like only checking email at a certain Correct. couple times a day or something yeah, like that. And I talked to my dad who's a lawyer and he's like, I can never do that. My clients will cut my head off. And I'm like, yeah, that's probably true. But you could do something you could do every two hours or you could do every five hours or whatever. Um, for what I, I do every 24 hours myself. And I think, I think a lot of businesses could probably do that, but whatever it is, you just don't want to have this open portal. That's kind of, of, of you know, um, messages coming at you. Right. And email is almost the worst for that because you'll get sucked in by a new message. You'll respond to it. And by the time you've done that, another new one has come in and it can just, it can completely derail your day. Exactly. Yeah. And calls and whatever else, you know, blog posts, um, your, your friend in your mastermind group that's telling you about how you should do webinars, you know, <laughs> there's all sorts of things. What does sort of the next month look like for you? Um, so the next month I am focusing on, on just sort of building up traction for, for my course um, and just kind of trying to use the course as, as a lead-in for, for consulting. And, and not even so much as a lead-in, but just as another option. I think that there are a lot of, um, of, of younger professionals and younger entrepreneurs that would prefer to just sort of binge out like Netflix on this material. And there's other people that would really like to invest more to have sort of a hand-holding you know, one-on-one -on -one approach. So I'm just kind of trying to do to do both and, and double down on the stuff that's less scalable, and then at the same time doing this the stuff like podcasting, for example, that's a little bit more long-term um, to get to build up the list and do all that good stuff. Nice. And where do you kind of hope things to be at the end of the year? 
Um, I would like to have a, a select number of clients um, that that I can really feel confident about providing value to, uh, and then just sort of be balancing that with with a course that's you know generating traction on its own. If that makes any sense, it's a little vague. <laughs> no, but I think while it might be vague, it's something that at least the notion of kind of those two different prongs of a business, most people can relate to that that kind of that idea. Yeah, and I, and I think you know I know a lot of your audience are, are consultants, and I think that e-learning is is a huge place to go into, and it makes a lot of sense, um, either as a marketing tool or as a product in and of itself. Um, and I think that if you have you know a successful consulting practice or even one that's that's relatively new, you can make a course or you can write a book, and if you've already written a book, you can make a course and vice versa. So it's sort of like it's it's right there in front of you. Yeah, it's funny because so I host this podcast as part of my kind of job as marketing director at Hubstaff, but like I still run other marketing stuff that has nothing to do with agencies at all. And one of the big things that I, I stress for SaaS companies, for software companies, is the importance of having an upsell because you're going to have people who are, if someone's willing to pay you $20 a month for your product and you have a thousand customers, there's going to be a percentage of those that'd be willing to pay you 200 or even 2000 or more a month to get better service. And it's almost, but the opposite holds true as well. Like if you're a consultant, if you're an agency that is offering high touch custom services, there's a huge portion of the market that doesn't have the money for that. It doesn't have the need for that. But if you can create some sort of e-learning product, Right. You're able to sell that and serve that market without selling your time. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and different people are just going to have different needs too. Um, and I, I think they could be an upsell. It could also be a downsell. You know, if, if somebody's like, I'm not ready for consulting yet, then say, hey, you know, you can get a good foundation from the course and then you'll, you'll know what I'm about and we'll be ready to rock whenever you want to. Right. Exactly. And then you can just kind of toss them into a nurturing sequence. And then when they are ready, they'll come back to you. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> so Dan, to wrap things up, if listeners have kind of enjoyed hearing your thoughts on all of this, on the importance of account management, where can they go to hear more? They can go to my site, which is a saleschema.com, um, sales and the schema as in schematic. Uh, and then if they want to download my book, uh, Mastering Account Management, which kind of goes through uh, the, the setting up the debrief call and farming and all these things I've talked about in sort of a step-by-step way. Um, I'd like to give it to your listeners and they can find that at saleschema.com slash agency advantage. Awesome. And I'll make sure to get all that linked up in the show notes um, just in case everyone, anyone has any issues finding it, but just it's sales schema, S A L E S S C H E M A.com slash agency advantage. That's right. So Dan, thanks so much for coming on. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Andy. Appreciate it. All right. Bye. Bye. We covered a lot of things in that interview, and honestly, we could have kept going for a while, but to me, it really came down to three main points. First was the value of farming. Every one of you knows how difficult and time-consuming it is to find and sell a new client, so why then do so many agency owners deliver the project and then immediately go on the hunt for a new client? Those clients are going to have other needs, and assuming you did a good job on the project, they already trust you, so why not make it part of your process to discover what those other needs are? The second takeaway is that you need to be consistent with farming for it to have an impact. And this is all about building a relationship. So if you're only reaching out to old clients when you need work, they're going to quickly see through that and realize that you don't actually have their best interests in mind. Consistently deepen your relationship with your clients by learning about their business, discovering their needs, and providing value, even if that doesn't mean more immediate work for your agency. And finally, 
If you want to improve your sales and marketing, you need to make this an actual commitment and block off the time specifically for each task. When you try to juggle a bunch of things at once, not everything gets done and what does get done usually isn't done well. Take ownership of sales for your agency and stick with it. That's all I have for you guys this week, but next week I'll be back with Galen Vinter, who talks about what is, in my opinion, the biggest strategy mistakes holding agencies back. Tune in next week to find out what that is. Talk to you then. See ya. See ya.